welcome to this Ideas to Change the World podcast hosted by the Socialist Workers Party. In this episode, we're discussing dangerous times. After Trump, is the nightmare really over? And to do that, we're joined by Mike Davis. Mike is a scholar, an author and a historian based in San Diego in California. And we're also joined by Virginia Rodino. Virginia is an activist with Marks 21, who's our sister organisation in the States, and she's also an anti-racist campaigner in Baltimore in Maryland. Is the nightmare over? In eight days' time, by most accounts, Donald Trump will leave the office of the White House and Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. But what does it mean for Trumpism? In recent days, we've seen a howl of rage from his supporters storming the Capitol building. We've seen senior Republican allies disown Trump and abandon him. We've seen him banned from Twitter, banned from Facebook and Instagram. And we've seen the Democrats pushing for impeachment. Tonight, on this SWP TV special, we want to go behind the headlines. We want to go behind the sensationalist news stories. And we want to ask the questions that really matter. What lies in store for Trump? What lies in store for his supporters? What lies in store for the movement he's inspired around racism and xenophobia? But also, what lies in store for the left? What will a Biden presidency be like? And how can the left fight back? I'm glad you're joining us, and I'm glad to say that to discuss these questions and more, we're joined by two fantastic guests from the States. I'm delighted to introduce Mike Davis from San Diego in California. Uh, Mike is a renowned scholar. He's an author of many books on pandemics, on social histories of the States, and he's written some incredibly useful articles in New Left Review and The Guardian recently to help us navigate recent events. So we're really delighted to be joined by you. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Uh, we're also joined by Virginia, Virginia Rodino, who is no, Virginia is no stranger to SWP TV. Uh, she's been on many of these shows before. Virginia is an activist in Baltimore, in Maryland. Uh, she's a member of our sister organization, Marks 21. She's also active in the Green Party, and is an anti-racist activist where, where she is. So a big welcome to you again, Virginia. And of course, the third person or the third member of the panel we're joined by is you at home. Um, I can see there's hundreds of you watching already. Welcome to this SWP TV live broadcast. It's the first time we're live in 2021. I hope you're well, I hope you're safe, and I hope you're ready to fight back. Uh, we're live on four platforms tonight. If you're watching on Twitter or Facebook or on Instagram, please give this video a like and give it a share so we can reach more people. And if you're watching on YouTube, press that subscribe button so you can find out about future events. And remember, throughout the show, we want to hear your thoughts at home. There's been many events happening in the US over the last few weeks. I'm sure people at home who are watching have comments, have questions, maybe disagreements with what Mike and Virginia are going to say. If that's the case, do post them in the chat and we'll do what we can to read them out. Now, I'm going to dive straight in and I want to bring Mike in first for the first 
uh, question of the evening, really. And Mike, I really want to get your thoughts about how we can analyse what happened at the Capitol the other week, the other day. Well, one of the more fantastic moments in the invasion of the Capitol was when the crowd started chanting, hang Pence, hang Pence, uh, Mike Pence, Trump's vice president. What happened that Wednesday was nothing less than, I think, the breakup of the Republican Party. On one hand, you have the 140 uh, Republican members of Congress who voted to invalidate the uh, results of the election. This is the hardcore uh, Trump base. This is uh, the bunker, as it were. And public opinion polls since uh, the inauguration of Trump for four years and continuing today show that he has unmovable uh, support amongst approximately 40% of registered voters. If you work out kind of back in the envelope calculations on the election results in November, it turns out that out of the 72 million or so votes that he received, uh, the vast majority belong to this group, though there are 17 or 18 million uh, what you might call soft Trump supporters or situational uh, Trump supporters who are not in that uh, hardcore. So Trump is not going away. Uh, and particularly in the House of Representatives, Congress people serve for two years. So the elections follow very rapidly. And this is where there's the greatest possibility of uh, for the Trump camp to continue to take revenge on any uh, defectors and uh, win elections. If you look at the Senate, it's very, very different. And some of the most, um, some of the most talented, at least eloquent, uh, Republican senators, young Republican senators, people like Tom Cotton, uh, of Arkansas, for example, uh, have now defected. And it's in the nature, of course, of the Trump camp uh, that it never forgets or forgives. And the reason for the defection of such a uh, large group, the majority of the Republicans in the Senate denounced the invasion and uh, accused Trump of some degree of, of responsibility for it. This was not just a reaction to the invasion itself, because for weeks or months since the November election, business has been organizing against Trump. Businesses that uh, historically are, are the financial infrastructure of the Republican Party. And one of the most amazing things that happened that Wednesday was the organization that you could describe as the, you know, the historic bedrock of modern republicanism, the National Association of Manufacturers. They actually called for Pence to use the 25th Amendment uh, to depose Trump. So what you see happening here, 
as the Republican Party uh, polarizes into these two camps is that on the uh, Senate side, uh, and senators serve for six terms, so they're not easy uh, to remove, and they get tremendous business, corporate contributions, is a kind of realignment of that section of the party with its traditional business uh, uh, base, while the, uh, the right-wing populist portion will remain with uh, 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 Trump. This is quite astonishing. It's interesting you say that, Mike, about, about the schism that's going on in the Republican Party. I guess the question I have on that is how successful do you think the anti-Trump wing can be in trying to drag the Republican, maybe the Republicans back to where they were, maybe, you know, but before Trump? Because I saw that poll, I, you know, I don't know whether you believe it, but the YouGov poll, which said that 45% of Republican voters, I think, supported or, or agreed with what happened at the Capitol. For the anti-Trump sections of the Republican Party at the top, do you think they can be successful in drawing a line under Trump? Well, the secessionists, and, and I must emphasize that we're not talking about so-called mythical uh, creature, the moderate Republicans. They're not moderate. Uh, they remain on the far, uh, far left. They're, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, on the far right. They're the post-Trump uh, party. And their greatest strategic asset uh, are suburbs, outer suburbs, wealthy uh, suburbs, the suburbs that have been the uh, holy grail of uh, Obama, uh, you know, Biden campaign to neglect of the Democrats' real base. But anyway, this is where they could uh, pose the greatest threat to the Democrats and where they have the greatest purchase while the hardcore uh, uh, Trump camp will remain strong uh, in rural counties and small towns uh, in cities or everywhere where evangelical voters constitute a, a, a majority. I think you'll see uh, them hanging on to uh, the cult. And, of course, the arrests that have occurred and the crackdown by the social media on Trump and, and so on generates an uh, enormous number of, of grievances and also martyrs for the cause of the, uh, it's essentially a neo-fascist movement now under Trump. Yeah. On, on that question, I, I guess one, look, one of the reasons they're abandoning shit is because the, the scenes from the Capitol last week, you know, were shocking in many ways. And I want to bring Virginia in on this question, which is, you know, some people in the press have talked about this being a fascist coup and so on, which I think is probably a bit wide of the mark. But clearly something quite important happened that day. You had a president at a podium urging you know, a crowd of people with, with far-right and fascist elements within it to, to, storm, to storm the capital. The, the question I wanted to ask you, Virginia, is do you think those far-right forces, do you think they come out of last week stronger or weakened by what happened at the capital? I think they're definitely emboldened. Uh, 
for sure. So um, what we're seeing now uh, is Trump and uh, company are calling, and we see mobilization for this, um, for the inauguration this upcoming weekend, um, that there will be demonstrations by the far right in every state capital and uh, also in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if they would have had enough of uh, pressure before last Wednesday to be able to call this, this amount of mobilization, but, but that's definitely happening. So I do think that, it's, um, that they're more emboldened, that they are empowered. Uh, and I think that what we saw as well was, um, if not collusion, certainly light-handedness uh, in terms of the, uh, the state response and, and the police response um, in general to what we saw was the storming of the Capitol. So um, that is problematic as well, and certainly the light-handedness um, is not discouraging then to the far right to, to mobilize additional demonstrations. Yeah, it's it's interesting you you say that Virginia, but and I, and I want to bring Mike in again on this question, which is clearly a lot of people were shocked by the scenes that they that they saw, and clearly there are far right elements organising within it. Do you think, Mike, that the schism you talk about in the Republicans, do you think there is a chance of a break? You know, could could we see some of the more pro-Trump elements at the top of the party? you know, being forced to, to, to look at maybe some kind of new formations along the lines we've seen in Europe around, you know, far-right parties like the AFD in Germany and so on? Or do you think that the Republicans can hold together, even going into, you know, the, the, the presidential primaries, which will start in 2022 and so on? So what do you think of the prospects of a, of a long-term break within the, within the Republicans? Well, I believe this is a long-term break. The structural problem with American politics is that you can have a situation like today where essentially we have four parties because the Democratic Party is uh, also split and polarized. But forming a third party uh, is so difficult. Uh, the obstacles to it are so huge in our system that more than likely the two Republican camps will use the same label, brand themselves as Republicans, but effectively uh, act as two different parties, with the Trumpites being the real spoiler for the 2022 uh, congressional elections, the, the by-election, if they, as seems likely, go out to wreck revenge. Uh, on the uh, the other uh, Republicans, uh, this could be enormous opportunity for the Democrats, but we'll see. Yeah, we've got some. Um, we've got plenty of questions flooding in from people in the comments watching online. We've got Tara asking, "Will the U.S. have? Uh, will the U.S. far right have as much confidence without a figurehead in Trump?" And we've got Sarah who's asking, what was the American left's response to the Trump supporters storming Congress? And are people responding by organizing against these people? I just want to remind people and welcome everyone who's watching at home. We've got around 450 people watching across the four platforms already. So please do keep 
your comments and questions coming. I, I want to bring back Virginia, if I can, uh, if, if, if I can bring a Virginia in. It kind of links to what Sarah asked on the Facebook chat, which is obviously lots of people have talked about the discrepancy that, you know, Trump supporters, the response of the police to them, where they're kind of almost allowed to storm the Capitol with, the, with, the, with what, what, what the Black Lives Matter movement faced over the summer. The question I want to ask to you, Virginia, is do you think that the political theatre of what happened at the Capitol, does that overstate the, the threat of the far right in the states? Or, you know, do, do we see these people giving, being given oxygen by the Trump movement? And, and how widespread? And, and, and you know, what, what kind of threat do you think they represent? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely uh, the Trump administration over the past four years gave oxygen to the far-right movement. So we, we understand that these elements um, existed before Trump. Uh, we understand that they've now been given such a wide platform um, and the oxygen since then. Um, so definitely, you know, there's, there's a major kind of struggle ahead. I mean, going back to what I said in terms of the, this implicating the state's sort of cooperation or leniency with, with uh, the far-right protesters. Um, I mean, that's a problem in and of itself that we have, to, we have to address because what I saw last Wednesday at the Capitol was also, you know, the, the ruling class's response to the brilliant Movement for Black Lives demonstrations that we have seen earlier because the ruling classes know that there is a, a palpable anger among you know, ordinary Americans um, around racism, um, around uh, the inequalities that, that most of us, you know, face um, in, in the class, uh, as well as the, you know, the, the awful mishandling of the pandemic. And so, uh, you know, in terms of distracting us and in terms of maintaining, you know, it, its status quo, um, I think that is another reason why the, the state allowed uh, for what happens last Wednesday at the Capitol. So um, it goes much deeper than Trump. And in terms of you know, the, the left's response to this, uh, I th we are mobilizing and uh, people are motivated and we have been, an, we have been seeing um, a lot of anti-racist, anti-fascist um, activities going on. So just uh, a couple days ago, in New York City, the Proud Boys had announced that they were going to storm through. Um, and for the second time now in the past few months, um, anti-fascist organizers, uh, including you know, a broad, a broad uh, group of, of activists like unions and uh, anti-racist and community groups, took to the streets. And it was a few hundred of them. But that sort of response um, discouraged the Proud Boys from, and they called off their rally. And this is the type of response we need to do. I mean, we are certainly the many. The anti-fascists are, are the majority. Um, even the 70-plus the millions of Trump voters, they, they aren't all Nazis, and we shouldn't just hand them over and relinquish those tens of millions of Americans um, to Trumpism and to neo-fascism. We can't just discount them. We have to fight to get back the majority of you know, our fellow workers. Uh, in our class. And so that is the struggle ahead. Um, and we can win by uniting 
um, across, you know, different political lines and so on. Um, and and we have to just build a vibrant anti-fascist movement in the United States. Um, those of us in Marx 21 have already begun to by uh, joining a, a group called United Against Hate, which is a coalition that includes, um, that's included participants like NAACP chapters and um, uh, Islamic uh, and Muslim um, civil rights organizations, uh, communities of faith and unions, anti-racist groups, um, and we've come together to discuss how we fight back against this and what kind of tactics uh, we can use and what kind of demonstrations and mobilizations we're going to be able to plan. And so we've already set our sights to what are we doing for inauguration and MLK Day, which fall in the same time frame. Uh, what are we doing around the inauguration demonstrations um, by the left are already being called in D.C. And we are already organizing for the World Against Racism Day in March. Um, so just working together in unity, bringing together different groups who normally don't work together, but who are decidedly, firmly anti-racist and anti-fascist. Um, that, that building has been going on in the States, and that's what we need to see, just a, a kind of a working class movement that stands up against fascism and, and makes ourselves more visible than they are, um, rather than dismissing them just, you know, as MAGA hat wearers. Um, this is a serious uh, situation that we're in, and, and so many, many groups on the left um, and, and center-left are, are coming together, acknowledging this and building together. It's brilliant to hear that, Virginia, and I hope that helps answer some of the questions we've had in the chat about what the left's response is. Please do keep the questions coming. Uh, please keep giving this video a share as well. We're on 580 people watching across all platforms. Help get us up to 600. Do, do click share. And spread the sh and, sp and share the stream. Um, I, I just want to, to just to build on what Virginia was saying. I want to bring Mike back on a point, which is obviously the shocking images which came from the Capitol is, you know, some of the far right people who are participating, right? You know, some of the people wearing slogans on their T-shirts saying Camp Auschwitz and so on. Obviously, we sometimes get an image over here, Mike, that you know this is what Trump's base is all like, but. The, the thing we have to realize is that, you know, in November, 71 million people vote for Trump. And I know you wrote something in New Left Review, uh, I think, just after the election, trying to really analyze the results. The, the question I have for you, Mike, is what, what are the sort of tensions in Trump's base? Because obviously, you, you know, there's a far right element who support him. But how is it that in a November election and still he's able to maintain quite a high degree of support amongst his base? Who, who are these kind of people, do you think? Well, again, I, I did a, a calculation that uh, indicated uh, that about a fifth, or maybe even as high as a quarter, of the Trump vote uh, are people who are critical of Trump, but voted for him uh, uh, nonetheless. And, of course, you know, we'll know more about this as finally... Uh, election surveys and, and, and subsequent interviews provide more information on people's motives. But the thing that happened in, in the election was that Biden stupidly abandoned the issue of, of the economy. The Democrats should have never allowed uh, the COVID, the pandemic issue to be severed from the issue of 
of of jobs. It was, it was you know, the easiest thing in the world uh, to concentrate on, on, you know, we want to bring Americans back to work, and that's why we have to have a national pandemic strategy. They didn't do that. Um, and the result was that Trump, particularly uh, with what seemed to be impressive uh, increase in, in jobs in October, was able to run as the jobs uh, candidate. Now, the task of beginning to win some of these uh, situational Trump voters back is particularly the responsibility of labor. And one of the things that I found um, almost shocking about the campaign was the low visibility of of the labor movement. There were, of course, some important exceptions. Uh, Nurses United, the progressive uh, uh, nurses union, was everywhere. Uh, They were the principal union supporting uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. But in many of the old guard unions, particularly industrial unions, leadership seemed uh, too frightened of its own membership to um, really fight internally to convince people uh, uh, not to vote for uh, uh, Trump, Uh, although that was made difficult by the fact that Trump, still in the minds of so many union members, still seemed to be the one who was fighting to bring jobs back to America uh, and so on. Now, Biden has announced that he will be the most pro-labor, pro-union president in American history. And progressives in the streets, in the workplace, and in Congress need to hold him to that pr- promise in every way uh, you know, possible. He's provided an, you know, an opening here. But so much depends on, on new organizing campaigns and the reinvigoration of, of rank-and-file leadership uh, in the labor movement. The, the union that had always been the, uh, uh, you know, the major liberal force, liberal democratic force, uh, the United Auto Workers, is still digging itself out of the rubble of a major episode of corruption amongst its leadership something that, for instance, helped undermine its attempts to organize auto plants uh, uh, in, in the American South. But we need to really uh, uh, do everything we can, those of us who are not in the, uh, the workplace or unionized workplace, uh, to support these struggles. Clearly, Mike, um, Biden is going to continue on the vein that you just described during his election campaign. If you look at his response over the last week, he's embracing law and order. He's embracing, you know, disaffected Republicans in the name of bipartisanship and and so on. Do you think the Democrats and Biden will benefit from the scare of the Capitol riots? You know, do, do you think that by saying that, you know, this is the alternative, you have to get behind us. Do you think this will, will benefit Biden? Well, again, I mean, the Democratic Party uh, is a two-headed animal right now. And Biden represents uh, an almost uh, exact copy 
of the last Obama administration. It's a restoration and continuity uh, with progressives and some liberals, you know, now greatly angered by their failure, by his failure to uh, appoint any of the progressive leadership uh, to important posts in, in the administration. But thankfully, the Democratic successes in Georgia, which above all were due to just a fantastic mobilization of, 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 of black voters, the fact that Democrats now narrowly control the Senate absolves progressives of the charge that otherwise Biden supporters might make because we need unity and we can't do anything too progressive or radical. That excuse doesn't hold right now. But the problem, uh, the problem with the progressive side is that the Sanders campaign mobilized this enormous energy to the extent that, you know, uh, in polls, voters under 30, you know, by a considerable majority, said they favored socialism over capitalism. That's an extraordinary moment in American history. But it promised that it would be an in-and-out campaign, that, it, mm. that movements would help uh, progressive candidates win, progressive candidates in turn would help movements grow. And that's not the case. I mean, Bernie Sanders, since his concession uh, in in March, uh, has constantly applauded uh, workers' actions and anti-racist actions. He suggests great legislation, as does Elizabeth Warren. But that's always followed by the punchline of uh, send money to this progressive candidate in uh, you know, this state or sign this. Uh, uh, petition. And the result was that the Republican, the far right base of the Republican Party, mobilized by the president, ended up owning uh, protests around uh, uh, the pandemic, despite the fact that Black Lives Matter demonstrations showed that, you know, people on the left properly mask and so on, uh, posed little little danger of, of, of contagion. We should never abandon the streets. And now, um, more than ever, uh, we need to use streets, workplaces, and community uh, uh, struggles uh, to light a fire under Congress, but more importantly, to sustain activism and to keep pushing uh, to the left. Because you're in a period right now where socialist demands, demands for social ownership of the means of production, suddenly have real, you know, uh, mass, uh, you know, resonance. Uh, clearly the nursing home industry has to be broken up and the private equity firms that largely control it uh, uh, need to be expelled. Uh, Amazon and the social media are now the integral infrastructure of this digital age. And we should do as socialists did more than a century ago and demand social ownership under uh, uh, democratic control. You might have said this 
you know, five years ago or something, and everybody would have yawned. But now it makes sense to uh, uh, millions of people. So within the broader progressive movement, socialists need to uh, advocate, you know, truly radical uh, solutions, or in, as Trotsky once called it, uh, transitional demands. And the, and the same certainly applies here. I, I wanted to, to, to pick up on what you raised about the more sort of progressive or, or left wing of the Democrats, because obviously they've seen, you know, quite big gains uh, over the last number of years. You talked about Sanders, the squad, AOC and so on. How much are they under the discipline of Biden and the right? I noticed he, you know, he didn't point anyone to his cabinet. So, so how much do you think the left are under that discipline? And with the sort of the left on the ground, do you hear people putting this, the same kind of arguments that you outlined? You know, the, the DSA, the growth of socialist groups. Is this is this something which is being put across uh, regularly by, on the ground? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the problem is that in a period that provides this exceptional opportunity uh, to build a genuinely socialist movement in this country, uh, the left is very fragmented. Uh, its best results uh, and its most effective campaigns tended to be local, but there is no effective national coalition. I raised this point recently uh, about the failure to mount a national campaign create, to create a uh, campaigning uh, coalition in defense of... Uh, 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 workers and the essential workforce and healthcare workforce. This is what we should have been doing back in um, April and, and and May. But there is, you know, no no group or coalition of groups that's in a position uh, to sell this and uh, uh, support it. So you know, we see tremendous activities on uh, a local level, particularly in uh, bigger cities. But nationally, the question of how not just a, I mean, a socialist uh, movement, but for now, a uh, progressive united front could be built. It's unclear in that can be addressed. GSA is highly factionized, factionalized and uh, effective on a uh, local level. But nationally, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not organized uh, to provide any kind of, uh, uh, any, any kind of united, uh, uh, you know, response or uh, a consistent uh, a program. I hope I'm not offending, you know, activists out there, but my impression is the vast majority of People who are active in groups like DSA and so on uh, are well aware of the weakness uh, on a national uh, uh, level. But conditions are so extreme in this country, and I'm not talking just about the deaths. I'm talking you know, about the astonishing high rates of unemployment, the loss of wealth by uh, communities of color and so on. I mean, it's like... in Late March, people went to bed. It was 2020. They woke up the next morning. It was 19, uh, 
32 uh, all over again. So the, the energy, uh, the oxygen, as you will, to combust social uh, uh, struggles will be there and, and you know, and will, uh, will grow. But I defer to people like uh, Virginia, who are in the thick of it, uh, for an estimate of what the chances are of beginning to pull together uh, on a national level. On, on what you've just said there, Mike, we've got a, a question from Paul in the chat on Facebook saying that developments in the U.S. are very dangerous. The left need to build the equivalent of an anti-Nazi league. Do the panelists think this will happen? And I'm also going to come to Virginia on, on a question based on what Ben has written on Facebook, which says the AOC, the squad, Bernie, etc., are good thought leaders and activists with a broad base, but are they held back by the workings of the Democratic Party? And just to remind everyone watching at home, we've got around 580 people watching so far, so keep your comments coming, press share, click subscribe, click the like button, and so on. I, I want to come to you on this, Virginia, if that's okay. Partly on what the, those two comments from the chat raised, and partly what Mike was raising, which is clearly... You know, if you look at Biden's record, you look at what how he's responded to, uh, you know, the recent events, to, to what he was saying during the election and so on. There is a real attempt by the Democrats to write off the Trump years as, as an aberration, uh, to kind of draw a line under it and, and restore things the way they were, go back to normal. What do you think are the prospects for this, Virginia? And what do you think we, we can expect from a Biden presidency? And and to add to that, how, how can the left respond? Yeah, I mean, I think the focus on um, electoralism and reformism to make the types of changes that we're talking about that are needed um, in terms of ridding our, our country of, of racism, of, of fascism, um, and all the ills of capitalism. I mean, I think that... Um, that we have to, to uh, you know, certainly look strategically at ele electoral pol politics, um, but we can't rely on, on it to be the, the final solution. I mean, the fact that Biden almost, you know, lost the election, it was just so painfully, incredibly close um, against, you know, the most unpopular uh, presidents in history, you know, is, is quite telling. Um, and he served as vice president under a very, very popular um, administration. So um, his policies um, and his platforms did not resonate, you know, with the majority majority of people. So I think I think that that's you know something we have to we have to remember. Um, I do agree with with Mike absolutely about uh, many things, and certainly uh, holding up the importance of rank and file uh, and union movements uh, to, to help push, you know, these changes forward. I mean, it is, it, it is uh, the heart of the working class that, that are going to, um, you know, help drive, drive together uh, this progress. So, you know, in terms of uh, the progressives in the Democratic Party, yes, I absolutely believe they're held back um, by the structure of, you know, the Democrats, um, but of electoralism in general. So, uh, I mean, I, I am active in a progressive political party called the Green Party, but as Mike had mentioned earlier, it is incredibly onerous on any independent third parties to, um, to get on the ballot, to raise money, to, to have any sort of voice um, uh, 
and so it, so there's that. There's all those obstacles. But, you know, at the end of the day, it isn't going to be a political party that brings about these changes either. And so the focus must be on building uh, these united fronts that we've been talking about. And absolutely, not only is it possible in this moment, but, it's, but it is happening. And so I belong to uh, two different uh, very important, um, and I'll send out uh, the links to, uh, to both of these. One is called the Labor, uh, Labor Action to Defend Democracy, and it came about organized by labor, for labor. Uh, so these are authentic you know, unions that are members and participants of this, of this network uh, that came together when it seemed a couple months ago that Trump wasn't going to leave the White House peacefully. So for, they've been meeting for a few months and talking about what, what could they do. And these are the unions who passed uh, resolutions to go on general strike if Trump didn't leave, leave peacefully. So um, these are you know, rank and file activists that are doing this. And now they are looking, and, and a number of them have joined another coalition that I'm helping to build called uh, United Against Hate which is an anti-fascist um, united front uh, that includes all the groups that I spoke about earlier. And we're working to see how we can connect the two uh, to strengthen e each other um, and maybe even combine. But the point of the matter is, is it, it's, it's not just possible, it's happening. And, it, and it's very, very important that it, that it is because this is the movement that is going to provide you know, the, the answers to all of these disenfranchised people, including some of those we see storming the Capitol, um, because, you know, the, the discontent caused by the economic crisis um, is decades and decades in the making. The, the austerity cuts, the cuts to social spending and social programs that, you know, that the working class desperately needs, and the people who are looking towards some of these neo-fascist ideas um, are the, the very people who need government support, and that government support hasn't been happening. And so the, the enormous amount of real fear and, and you know, material poverty that, that a huge swath of Americans you know, are, have been facing and are going to, and, and it's only going to get worse because of the pandemic and the economic fallout uh, because of the pandemic, it's only going to get worse. And it really is unions and, and organized labor and, and working class who are going to provide, you know, the solutions. It's not going to be the Democratic Party, unfortunately, because, Lewis, as you just said, you know, in terms of what we see the Biden administration doing, it's going to be, let's go back to polite status quo. And let's go, you know, let's, let's reach across the aisle and, and let's mm. do some bipartisanship. And even if AOC and Ted Cruz sign on and agree to, you know, legislation together. That is not going to bring the changes that, that we need. And dare I say, even if Bernie Sanders were president, we're, we're going to, you know, enter the White House in, in, in a week. We on the left would still need to, you know, hold electeds accountable because it isn't about reformism that's going to make these changes that we're talking about that we need to, to happen. Um, so, uh, certainly, we want the, the the fringes of society to crawl back under their the, the rocks and, and the KKK and so on. But uh, we need to provide real answers um, to to the disillusionment of of both parties, 
you know, that Trump helped to um, help to help to stoke and, and sow the seeds. And so rather than uh, than allowing him to, um, to to have the only answers for 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 these millions of people, you know, we need to uh, go into communities, go into our workplaces and provide that education and these political arguments about what really, you know, will will turn things around for us. And and that is, you know, building up worker organizations um, that is recognizing uh, what we need to do together uh, in terms of surviving the pandemic together and pressuring big pharmacy and the government to do the right thing around the vaccines and um, and our, our health and safety. So I think that, um, again, these United Fronts are existing and are building in the, in the states. Um, and the key is not to dissolve all of our energy into uh, pushing for electoral, you know, victories or ele electoral reforms and to instead, uh, you know, just turning around and building up uh, movements in our, in our own communities. Virginia, it's interesting you say that. You mentioned about the, the, the bitterness that led to Trump in the first place. And, and I want to bring Mike in on this question, which is, you know, we've seen the attacks on working class people from both Republican and Democrat for the last however many years. And, and you know, the, 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 the bitterness that created that allowed, you know, Trump to pose as an outsider in the first place. My question for you, Mike, is how much do you think Biden can deliver on trying to re restore the status quo? You know, there's big hopes, isn't there, about him you know, re restoring the centre ground in politics. We've got a similar project here in Britain with what Keir Starmer's trying to do with Labour. When you look at the, you know, what Biden comes into office against, you know, a raging pandemic where I think it's going to be 400,000 dead by February, you know, economic trouble, obviously the, the polarisation. Do you think, you know, how much can Biden deliver is, is the question I have for you, Mike. Well, Biden talks about a second uh New Deal, but nothing is less likely uh, at this point. I mean, look at the economy. The world radically changed uh, after 2008, and it's it could not be more clear, I think, at this point in the United States that the only source, large-scale source, of decent living wage jobs is going to have to come through uh, the public sector from public employment. Uh, although public employment has been devastated by the policies of um, the Trump era, um, I mean, a million workers in federal and state local government uh, have lost their jobs. But in the Depression, you had the most productive economy uh, on Earth. The problem was uh, overproduction and uh, finding a way to put workers back to work. Uh, and that was ultimately accomplished by the Second World War and then by the linking of productivity increases to wage increases. Nothing like that. Uh, uh, occurs today. Capitalism is unable globally to 
create jobs. It's no longer, you know, a job machine. And this is as true in the United States as it is in uh, poorer countries. Uh, and I think the left needs to be very clear and explicit about this because we are in the threshold of seeing tremendous job losses due to the application of artificial intelligence uh, throughout the, uh, the economy. So none of the conditions or means exist for Biden to unite the country, return us to civility at the same time, uh, answer the question that he failed to answer during the campaign, like Clinton before him, which is when you get down to the nitty gritty, you have to imagine a kitchen table somewhere in Charleston, West Virginia, Youngstown, Camden, New Jersey. And candidate goes to the kitchen table with the family sitting there with their stack of bills. And the one question they would all ask him is what exactly are you going to do to enhance job security and create new employment opportunities here in Youngstown, in Camden, uh, you know, for that matter, in the, uh, uh, the Bronx. Democrats have never been able to answer that question, which is why they've lost such a significant sector of, uh, of unionized workers. So the left has to not only be a source of issue-by-issue issue resistance, it has to articulate a realistic vision of what's necessary uh, to provide an answer to the blue-collar people sitting around their uh, kitchen table. Yeah, you, you, you talked about the, the uncertainty of the situation and the volatility, and, and obviously it looks like that will continue into this year in 2021. And I think in, in one of your recent pieces, Mike, you kind of wrote that, you know, this makes, Chris, you know, looking in crystal balls uh, a bit redundant, really. But we've had some questions in the chat asking what the what the potential is for, for a for a break from the Democrats. You know, you both have talked about the sort of hold that Democrat politics has had on the left and the Democrat Party. Do, I, I'm not asking you to predict the future, but what, what do you think are the prospects for this and, and, and what the left can be doing to agitate for this? Well, I think the squad and AOC in particular have in fact acted like Bolsheviks in the Second Duma. That is, they've been trillions of the people in consistent opposition to the Democratic leadership and the kind of uh, Clinton-Obama uh, restoration uh, under Biden. And much depends on what they're able to accomplish and what they and the movements that support them, the kind of balance sheet they draw up of uh, uh, what's going on inside uh, the Democratic Party. If they, for instance, if AOC got up and said, look, you know, this is a lost cause. These guys are never going to meet the minimal demands of uh, people in New York City or anywhere else, then I think you have a, uh, a situation, a conjuncture, that might favor the development of a third party. But again, the structural obstacles to this 
uh, are huge. They're not insuperable uh, uh, by any means. But those of us who believe that uh, the Democratic Party uh, is incapable of carrying out radical reforms and remains more than ever uh, the second party of, 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 of capital, we have to be careful how we address our own uh, comrades and you know and supporters because they're incredibly loyal uh, to the progressives in Congress. But this poses responsibility on those very progressives to continue not only in opposition, but to provide honest estimates of, of what's going on and the chances uh, for reform. A real blow was uh, in late March when the Biden camp sat down with representatives of the Sanders campaign in subcommittees to talk about issues like green energy, the environment, race, and so on. But in the one on healthcare, the Sanders camp ended up conceding to uh, Biden's uh, fundamentally flawed, deeply flawed proposal for adding a public option to existing Obamacare, but retaining the role of private insurance companies. This, in my mind, was a, a grave strategic mistake. And Medicare for all, the single-payer national medical uh, uh, system, is, of course, more popular than ever. Every opinion poll shows, shows this, particularly given the fact that so many, uh, that, you know, millions of Americans, you know, have lost their health insurance during this crisis. And one test of electoral progressivism is how it's able to conduct the fight over, over this. This should be the, the absolute non-negotiable uh, uh, demand. And they'll, of course, be uh, accused of treason and you know, disunifying the Democrats and undermining uh, the 2022 congressional uh, uh, campaign. But that's, you know, that's nonsense. So I think we'll see very quickly in the next year or two, you know, what can be accomplished by the electoral progressives. But without any question, the, the you know, the great emphasis and the highest priority must remain with organizing in communities and workplaces and building large national uh, uh, protest uh, movements. It, it's a fascinating insight there, Mike. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure AOC will thank you for the Bolsheviks comparison, but, but, but there you go. Um, I, I want to come to Virginia on this on this question as well, because Virginia, as someone who's involved in the, you know, the organising on the ground, you know, in anti-racist campaigns, United Fronts, and so on, what what is the potential amongst you know, not just them. You know, not just DSA activists and the Democratic Socialists of America, but the sort of you know the more fragmented uh, elements of the left outside the Democrats. Is you know what? What are people? What What is the the talk there about the question of, of building something outside of the Democrats? Uh, yeah. So both of the networks that I mentioned earlier, Labor Action to Defend Democracy and United Against Hate, um, participants who 
you know, are broad and diverse. I mean, obviously the labor one is, is only labor unions, um, but recognize that a Biden administration is, is you know, not going to, to pro provide the answers that we, one, not only need to hold it accountable, you know, every step of the way, um, but also need to fight for uh, alternatives to what, you know, the Biden administration is posing and to push it to go even even further. So um, I think that uh, the responses that both networks are getting are, are incredibly strong, you know, given, given uh, what's, what's happening in the moment. Um, and so it's, it is adding fuel to our ability to organize and to reach out, and people are, you know, looking uh, for this type of political space to, to do this work because we know that we can't do it um, singularly, certainly we should be organizing in our own communities at a local level, but in order to link up nationally, and then of course with the World Against Racism um, Day of Action to link up internationally, I mean, that is what feeds, you know, our ability to organize, knowing that, that we're not alone, and then knowing that the answer is to build, you know, as strong of a movement as possible and, and as large as one. And luckily, you know, we don't have to look too far back in history, only just a few months ago, to see that it is possible to organize uh, a multi-ethnic, uh, diverse uh, mass movement in the streets, even during a pandemic that's, you know, that's safe and politically strong and can move the state to make changes um, and, to, uh, and to create... Um, you know, th these types of solutions and these types of answers uh, that, that we need to hear. So I think that um, that is happening and um, they, they do exist. And definitely, again, the response has been overwhelming um, and people are really interested in, in an, and organizations are very interested to connect up. So it's been very positive. It's, it's fascinating to hear an insight from what's going on in the ground, Virginia. So thank you for that. Um, unfortunately, our hour is almost up. We've just got time for one last question each, really. And I'm going to ask you both, oh, I'm to pose the same thing to both of you, starting with Mike, which is, in a word or in, in a few sentences, what do you think are the prospects and the tasks for the left in 2021? So I'm going to come to you first, Mike, if that's okay. Well... The United States goes against the global uh, uh, trend. What everybody's focused on right now is the growth and power of the far right. But what's unprecedented in this country, at least since the beginning of the 20th century, has been the development of a constituency for socialism and for people unafraid to use uh, uh, the, S, the S word. I mean, we have, you know, enormous tasks uh, ahead of us, but I'm very optimistic, particularly because of the young lions who, you know, you see in the streets and, and organizing in, in the campaigns. Brilliant. Thank you, Mike. And I'm going to come to you now, Virginia, for the, for the final word about the tasks and prospects for the left. Yeah, I share Mike's optimism. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, we can see it on the ground. And then again, just uh, in over the past year, we can see brilliant, brilliant uh, movements, um, you know, whose shoulders we rest upon. So 
Um, I, I think e even going back to the students uh, in the states who organize against the school shootings and against gun violence, and then we see the students going in, moving into the climate justice movement and carrying that movement, and then the youth of color who organized uh, the majority of the Movement for Black Lives uh, mass demonstrations. So there, there is a lot of momentum, and uh, there is not a lot of cynicism you know, in this new generation of activists um, about, about socialism. And there is absolutely, um, you know, critique of, of if the capitalist system is able to, you know, help us create the world that, that we want. And I think that these movements um, and the activists within them have said resoundingly no, and we need to create a different world and a better world, and, and we, we are doing it. Um, so, so absolutely optimistic. Um, in, in the days ahead. Brilliant. Thank you, Virginia. And we, we share your optimism. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for tonight. Um, before we go, I just want to leave you with two things. The first is to say that the event tonight was called Dangerous Times. Um, and we do live in some quite dangerous times. And to match these dangerous times, we need dangerous ideas. And we need to arm ourselves with ideas. And part of that is about reading, and learning about ideas. And books are weapons to do that. So I want to point people in the direction of Bookmark's Bookshop. Uh, arm yourself with the books of Mike Davis, with anti-racist texts, with socialist texts. And if you, do, if you are going to do that and get those books, get them from independent socialist bookshops like Bookmark's, not from billion or trillionaires like Jeff Bezos and Amazon. The second thing I just want to say is that if you've enjoyed the discussion tonight, if you agree with what both Mike and Virginia have said about the need for a militant, uncompromising, anti-racist movement, but also for the need for socialists who don't just line up behind the lesser evil, but fight for a better world, a better society, and a better vision of the way things can be, then think about joining the Socialist Workers' Party. We've got activists around the country. We've got a sister group in America, Marx 21. And we are committed to fighting against racism, but also fighting for that better world. That's all we've got time for. I want to say a big thank you to Mike for joining us from San Diego. Fascinating to listen to you, as always. And a big thank you to Virginia joining us from Baltimore. Thanks for listening to the Ideas to Change the World podcast, hosted by the Socialist Workers' Party. Remember to click subscribe, and if you want to find out about future events, campaigns and protests, go to swp.org.uk. Stay safe, stay socialist.